Friends, if you will now take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter four. Today we're going to be uh, we're going to be in Acts four, uh, the last paragraph of that chapter starts in verse thirty-two, and we're going to carry on through the first section in chapter five. We're going to go all the way through verse eleven. What we've been tracking together um, as we've as we've made it through these first four chapters of Acts so far has been mostly the spread of a message the spread of a message specifically about Jesus, about what his apostles saw when he walked the earth, about what they heard, about what, about what they experienced when they witnessed his death, and then even more, what they experienced when they saw him alive again. We've been watching that message make its way through, uh, through their part of the world, beginning in Jerusalem, and we've been watching effect, especially the effects that that message had on the people who first heard it and received it. One of the things Luke loves to do in telling the story that Acts tells is, is to track the spread of that message, but then zoom out every now and then and give a taste of what's left behind. As this message goes forward, people actually believe it. What, what happens in their life? What kind of communities form up amongst them? And the summary that we come to here in the end of Acts chapter 4 gives us one of these examples. Uh, when you embrace the message of Jesus, the message these apostles have been put in, in front of everyone that would listen, it's a message that affects you. This story that we're going to look at today, really a collection of two stories, is is a, a, a little window into how far the gospel reaches down when it grabs hold on a person. And in, in specifically in this case, what this story, what these stories are going to show us is that the gospel reaches all the way down into your pocketbook. It stakes a claim on what we Americans are probably of all peoples most likely to insist on as our own private realm. When you come to faith in Jesus, when you believe that he really lived and died and rose again and that he reigns now on the throne of everything. When you believe that, it changes your posture towards your money. Another way to put it is your posture towards your money is a pretty great indicator of who Jesus is to you. That's, that's basically what we're going to say today with some very concrete examples to help show us the way. Uh, really, it, it, what we've got here are two stories, two stories to, to reinforce in a positive way and then in a negative way, the same basic point about how our money shows who Jesus really is to us. Both of these stories involve money that was given to the church to support those who, who were in need. Um, in one of them, uh, the one at the end of chapter four, uh, you get a beautiful picture of a community of love and mutual support where everyone is at everyone else's disposal. In another story, the story told at the beginning of chapter five, we have a brutal and even shocking picture of God's judgment. The first story shows us that you can give because of Jesus, inspired by him, driven by his grace to you in your own life. And the second story shows us that you can give, also give, same kind of gifts in place of Jesus, not because of him, but as a substitute for him. So what I want us to consider this morning as we look at each one of the, or this afternoon, as we look at each one of these stories is, Two ways to give. You can give because of Jesus. That's the end of chapter four. Or you can give in place of Jesus. That's the beginning of chapter five. I want to begin by reading the, the end of chapter four, the first section that we're going to look at together. I'm going to pick up in verse 32 and read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own 
but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. These verses give us the pattern. Then beginning of verse 36, you get the first of two examples. So verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Two ways to give. First way to give, you can give because of Jesus. And that's what, this, that's what this section points us to. I want you to notice three details that come out of this little story that we just read. Three details in this picture of the first church and how they related to one another. Another way to say it is that there's three details that, that describe those who believe. Verse 32 says the full number of those who believed. And that's who we're talking about. Those who had heard the message that the apostles had taught and accepted it all the way down to their core. What was true of those who believed? What difference did it make to believe that Jesus is who the apostles said that he was? I want you to notice three details here. One, their belief in Jesus has deepened their attachment to other people. All of them are there, the full number of those who believe. The whole church is gathered. And every member in that church, the whole sum total of them, they were of one heart and soul, verse 32 says. This, in other words, at their deepest core, all the way down to the center of who they are, they were unified. They identified with one another. There wasn't some sort of me and you left over. There wasn't an us and a them. They, they saw themselves as one body. They loved and hoped and grieved and shared everything together. That's the first thing to notice. Two, their belief in Jesus not only deepened their attachment to other people, their belief in Jesus weakened their attachment to their stuff. Did you notice that? That's what comes next. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. I mean, this is an important phrase to understand. It doesn't say that it wasn't his own. I mean, I mean, it still was. It's, it's just that he didn't see it that way. Stuff belonged to him. Sure, that, that was still true, but he wouldn't say that it was his. In other words, he didn't cling to it. He didn't live as if it was his. He didn't insist on his private right to it. The, the, these members, each one of them individually, treated what belonged to them as if it didn't belong to them. I mean, we're just two details into these three details I want you to see. And already, I hope you can see just how radically different this way of relating to one another is from what comes natural to us. And what comes most natural to us is to identify with our stuff. I mean, from, from the shirt you've got on to whatever you drive down the street to whatever Instagramable vacations you may take and, all, and everything in between, our tendency is to treat our money and what we do with it as a kind of extension of ourselves, part of how we mark off who we are part of how we present ourselves to other people. And then, and then if, if what, we're, what we're used to is identifying ourselves with and by our stuff, what we're also used to is comparing ourselves to others. They've got it exactly re reversed here. They don't compare themselves. They're not set off from one another. They're not always looking around at how they measure up against everybody else. They're one heart and one soul. 
And they don't identify themselves by their stuff. In fact, they detach themselves from it. Their attachment to others has been strengthened. Their attachment to their stuff has been weakened. Something radically different is going on here. This is crazy. The third detail to notice. Their belief in Jesus, the same belief that, that deepened their attachment to other people and weakened their attachment to their stuff, has created a community of inexplicable beauty. We read that they had everything in common. Verse 34 says that there was not a needy person among them. And Acts chapter 2 says something a whole, uh, a whole lot like this. Uh, it talks about them selling their position, possessions, sharing with anybody who had need. And then it says that they had favor with all the people. People saw this and they're like, man, what has gotten into these people? What kind of community is this? And that the Lord added to their number every day, those who were being saved. It was, it was this way of relating to one another that was drawing in those who didn't know Jesus to make them interested in knowing more about him. Basically what Luke is doing here is showing us the new kind of community that the gospel creates. This message, when it spreads, does this amongst the people who believe it. This is a little bit of a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And in this community, nobody wants to hold back what's theirs. If you need it and I have it, it's yours. All that begs the main, uh, one main question to me. I, if, if this is really as radically unnatural as, as I've claimed, as Luke has implied, as I think just human experience shows us, the, the question that, that's begged by this picture is how did they get here? What did this to them? And verse 33 answers that question. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This community springs up not because somebody imposed some new set of regulations on them, not because they just got worn down with all the asks for money. This radical generosity and this community of identity and solidarity, it flows out of the message the apostles are preaching. The gospel changes your posture towards your money and towards the other people around you who might need it. Here's what the gospel means for my money. Through his death, Jesus paid the cost of forgiveness for anybody who calls on him, even those who personally put him to death. That's what we've seen in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4 as this message goes out. Through his resurrection, Jesus opened up a brand new world of unimaginable hope a world in which even death has no hold on his people. They will rise again just like he did. And through his ascension, when he took the throne of the universe, he now rules over all until every single one of his promises comes true. When you get that package, when you believe that message, then you belong to this king and his kingdom. And when you belong to this king and this kingdom, the size of your bank account has nothing to do with your significance or your security. It has nothing to do with your significance. When you're a child of this king and you're forgiven and you're loved and you're worthy in him, <laughs> like what do you have left to prove anyone by what clothes you put on your back or food in your belly or cars on your street? Hey, what have you got left to prove? You have no need to set yourself off from anybody. You are who you are in him. When you're a child of the king, you're also an heir. You stand and inherit the kingdom. 
and all of its riches, its unimaginable, inexhaustible, and untouchable riches. So why in the world would you hold on to what's yours as if you need it for security? The reality is no matter what I stockpile here, no matter how carefully I account for it and hold on to it, no matter how wisely I do or do not spend it, time is going to destroy all of it. It's a vapor. It may as well be nothing. And no matter what I stockpile here, it can't add anything to what I already have stored for me there beyond the reach of time and rust and moth and thieves. And listen to, listen to words that Luke records in his gospel, words that Jesus spoke to his followers as he predicted for them what the kingdom that was coming, their place in it, and what that meant for their stuff. This is Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 34. Fear not, Jesus says, little flock. In other words, you, vulnerable, small, insignificant on your own, unable to protect yourself. Little flock, fear not. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's the gospel. Now look what it does. Sell your possessions, Jesus continued, and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's the connection. There's a direct correlation between our attachment to Christ and his kingdom and our detachment from the stuff that keeps our hearts tethered to this world. These Christians here in Acts, this little community right here that we've just gotten a taste of, these folks are free, aren't they? Wouldn't you love the freedom that they live with? It's the gospel that's created it. Our posture toward our money can be a really helpful, a more tangible, recognizable sign for us, a bottom line sort of clue into our posture towards Jesus. It can show us what the gospel is to us, who Jesus is to us. So I want to encourage you to just spend some time with a couple diagnostic questions. It's by no means a comprehensive list, just a couple that came to my mind that I thought might be helpful for you to think about. Here's one. Do you plan to give away your money? I think one straightforward way to live as if what's yours isn't really yours is to decide up front, you know, on the level of your monthly budget, that some portion of it really won't be yours. And then to treat it as if it's somebody else's. So you're not reevaluating with every, with every uh, regular income check what you're going to do with it, but you've just made a commitment up front that a portion of this money is going to go to the needs of others. This was the principle behind the tithe in the Old Testament. That principle is not reaffirmed or reestablished as a law in the New Testament, but the principle is a really wise one. It's, it, it's giving God what's his off the top. That money, may, in your heart at least, and, and in your planning, it's considered to have never been yours to begin with. I think it's just a very helpful habit or discipline to to strive towards a way to be proactive and intentional like the believers that we see here. I mean, no one had to, had to pry this money from them. No one had to convince them to care. They knew that Christ in his grace was active towards them. He pursued them. He came after them. And so they're driven to do the same towards other people in need. For us, I just, I think planning, and making a commitment as a way of habit, that a, a kind of a choice to take choice out of it, 
can be a really helpful way to detach ourselves from our stuff. Here's another, here's another question for you. I mean, because everything I've just said about planning for giving, it could have a downside. You, I kind of set it and forget it mentality can subtly lead us to think that, that, okay, part of our money is God's and others have a claim on it. And part of our money is ours. And we have authority over that, right? That would be the downside. That would be a, 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 the wrong posture of heart towards making a decision to just give away some at the top. We also want hearts that are always open hearts that are always free with what we have. So here's a second question to complement the first one. When you receive unexpected income, what's your first thought? What's your first instinct of what to do with it? I don't believe that there's a biblical answer to that question that's imposed on you, friends. Right here, this whole text, we're, we're talking about heart. I can't see into yours. You can't see into mine. We can't see into one another's. Trust the Lord to guide us and shape our hearts according to the message that the gospel has brought to us. But it's an important question and one I encourage you to use to reflect on your own heart and your posture towards your stuff. The beauty of this gospel is that it sets us free from having to chase down significance or security through what we have in the bank or through anything else we might buy with our money. You can give, in other words, because of Jesus, because of what he's given to you. That's the first model for us. And Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, is our great example. There is another model, though, and I want to make sure we give plenty of time to this. So in, in, in chapter five, Luke gives us a story that's connected to the story we've just heard by the fact that it also involves someone who had money, who had resources, possessions, sold them willingly, and then brought that money to the apostles to be given to those who were in need, a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. But their story is very different, coming from a different posture of heart, leading to a very different outcome that's meant to warn us against another way that we could give. Not only could we give because of Jesus, we could also give and look from the outside to be doing exactly the same thing, but be giving in place of Jesus as a substitute for him. And that's not something we want to do. Let's read this, this set of verses together. Pick back up in chapter five. I'm going to begin in verse one. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is God's word. Friends, I think that the point of this example is to show us that we can give not only because of Jesus, but in place of him as a substitute for him, that we can give in a way that shows Jesus is not to us savior, justifier, supplier of our only hope in this life and the one to come. But before I show you where I'm getting that from this text, I do think it's important to talk for a minute here about what you might call the elephant in this text. Before we get to, to, to what they did wrong and how we can learn from their example, I, I, we have to talk about the severe and immediate judgment of God against them. And honestly, friends, this is not one of those times where some context clue from the text or you know, some bit of historical perspective, if you just knew the way things were back in the Greco-Roman times, it all would look different. It's, it, it's not one of those times. Peter tells us their gift was an act of deception against God himself and that God struck them down for it. And that's what it says. I wonder if it challenges your view of God to see him do what he's done to these people who gave part of their money to the apostles. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest and say, at least at a gut level, it does mine. We've just seen earlier in Acts how far he's gone, how far God has gone to forgive sinners, what it cost them, you know, the cost of his own son. We've seen who he was willing to forgive and his own enemies, the ones who put his son to death willfully and with great responsibility. He forgave them. And this, so this seems kind of like a whiplash moment, maybe unworthy of the forgiving God who didn't spare his own son. But, but, but friends, to whatever extent we react like that, the way at, at a gut level, I'm tempted to react. We're tempted to a dangerous misunderstanding of God that this story is partly meant to help us avoid. Two times in what I've just read to you, Luke tells us that great fear came upon all who heard of it. He says this in verse 5. He says it again in verse 11. He tells us this twice because this is the response that Luke wants for us, and we trust the response that God wants for us to this story, a serious and sober awareness of the weight of sin against this holy God. See, sometimes... We can see the offer of love and forgiveness from God, and at least implicitly, even if we would never own up to it, at least implicitly we can assume that he gives us this offer because sin isn't really a very big deal in the first place, as if sin is small and he just looks past it. But God's offer of forgiveness is so huge. It's so unimaginably loving precisely because sin against him isn't small. It isn't something he just fails to notice or chooses to look past. It's deadly. Why did God strike them for, for, for offenses I have been guilty of so often? It wasn't because then he was overcome and now he's regained his composure. 
It wasn't because I deserve better than they deserved. He would be just to have struck me down for what they have been guilty of here. Why he has not in his patience and why he did choose to strike them. I believe we, we must explain from the fact that he recorded what he recorded. He did what he did. He put it down here in order to teach his people the deadly seriousness of hypocrisy. The seriousness, in other words, the deadly seriousness of using his church as a front for some other goal. He sees through that. You can't lie to the Holy Spirit who works at the level of the heart. All things are revealed by him. And that brings us, friends, to, the, to, the, to what their sin was and what we can learn from it. What, what they did that we are not to do. And, it, and I, think, I think it helps us to see that it's paired with the example we saw in chapter 4. There, we saw that, 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 uh, that the, the community was open-handed with their stuff, that they, having, having heard the apostles' message and embraced it, were willing to, to let go of what was theirs because other people needed it. Our first instinct in, in chapter 5, maybe, is to see that what they were guilty of, Ananias and Sapphira, in other words, was stinginess. You know, that other people were given everything that they got from the sale of their property, and they didn't give everything. But verse 4 shows us that's not true. It was theirs. It was yours, Peter said. Even when you sold it, it was at your disposal. You could decide how much you wanted to give. Why'd you lie? The problem isn't that they gave just part of the money. The problem was their deception. See, friends, they thought this religion was like all the others. Well, what matters is outside conformity. Well, what matters is just doing what's done, being seen, being perceived to be holy. They see what the cool kids are doing, and they want in that crowd. I mean, Barnabas literally made a name for himself by giving away what he got from the sale of his property. I'd want that, wouldn't you? That's what they want. They want to make a name for themselves, but they want to make a name for themselves as cheaply as they possibly can. So they make the sale. They look at the money they got. And you, it, it's not hard to imagine them saying, you think we could get it for, for this much? See, what, what, their hearts, what their hearts reveal, or what's real rather about their hearts from what they've done here with their money, is that what they still really love is money. What they still really love is approval. Their hearts don't belong to God and his kingdom. Their hearts are tied here. They were doing this for affirmation. Their gift was a kind of like first century virtue signaling. It was about being seen to be a certain kind of person in a community from whom they wanted acceptance. Or to use another common biblical word, their gift was about justification. They wanted a name. They basically used their money to buy goodwill in the community and maybe even to buy favor with God. And one way or another, what they did was use their money to avoid needing Jesus. They received the penalty that their sin deserved. Because rather than trusting Christ to account for them, they tried to establish their own righteousness. And friends, that just won't ever work. 
Beware the temptation to give your money with a heart of Ananias or Sapphira because it is, it's just so easy to do. Think about how often people raising money will make their appeals. I think a lot of times it's been boiled down to one of two ways. They may appeal to your public image and they offer you a special tier that you can get into for a gift of a certain amount, a name that'll show up in a program or maybe even on a plaque or a building somewhere. They're going to offer you status. Isn't this the kind of person you want to be? Isn't this how you want others to see you? Or they may appeal to your guilt. They may play up needs, play on your shame at what you have. They may offer you status or they may offer you guilt reduction. And either way, what they offer you is an alternative to Jesus. Because what we know from, from what God has said so clearly, clearly to us in the New Testament is, is, that, is that in Christ, we have the only righteousness we're ever going to need. And in Christ, we have the forgiveness we can't find anywhere else. When our hearts are captured by this message, we don't have to give to make a name for ourselves. Jesus is our righteousness. We don't need a better rep reputation than his. When our hearts are captured by his message, we, we don't have to give to remove guilt from ourselves over what we have. Jesus has done that, and he's left no spots left for me to clean. What's left if not grandstanding or guilt result, reduction? What's left is, is simply grace and the freedom to give cheerfully and not under compulsion. That's the freedom modeled for us in the example of Barnabas, and it's the freedom that we want for ourselves and that we're going to pray that the Lord's Spirit will give to us.